Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Our guest today is Om Malik. Back in 2015, Om published an interview, or what might better be described as a conversation, with Brunello Cuccinelli. It's a truly special conversation, and I know many people that find it's a life-changing conversation. Brunello seems to be the rare, maybe the only billionaire that has somehow found balance in life. He's deeply philosophical. He approaches business with empathy. He has a strong family life, and he cares deeply about the people that work under his namesake brand. Ohm captured all of this in a spontaneous afternoon in Italy. For those who haven't read the piece, I recommend you pause the podcast and click the link in the show notes. We wanted to speak to Ohm about that experience meeting Brunello. And truthfully, this conversation with Ohm turned into something much deeper. Please enjoy our conversation with Ohm Malik. Ohm, thank you for joining us here. We were talking about this just before we hit record, but to set the table, it's really hard to overstate the impact of your interview with Brunello Cuccinelli. I think it's part of a cruel reality and a broader realization that many people have in most of the ultra successful, uber wealthy business people in the world have very poor personal lives or have damaged personal lives. And yet you presented someone who seems to have found balance in one of the most unique ways, one of the most distinctive ways. It's a piece where anyone that comes across it feels like it changes them. And it's referenced as that Cuccinelli piece by many people. So really excited to just walk through that experience, what it was like getting to write that piece, spend time with Brunello, and much more. And a good place to start is just behind the scenes. You write in the lead up to the interview that you were just talking about cashmere sweaters and talking about them for an hour, which sounds like you had a lot on your mind to talk about. But how does that lead to having this sit down, take us from San Francisco to Italy, and what went on in that conversation that led to that introduction? It's funny that you work three and a half decades as a journalist, as a writer, and you've written a couple of million words on the internet, and that's all one piece is what people remember. So that's great, but to teach people found it valuable from my perspective. I didn't really think I was doing an interview. It was just a conversation with somebody who I admired, not as a person, but just as a brand, as a clothing aesthetic, more like a fashion guy rather than just as a person. 
it was 
dude, come on. <laughs> I can't change my production line for you. But then we sat down and we started talking about he wanted to know more about me. I wanted to know more about him. And I asked the translator if I could hit record on my phone because I would love to do this. So like we are having a conversation. I don't know if it might lead up to something which I might write. Literally, that was it. She said, okay. And so the funny thing is it turned into a conversation that turned into an interview because there was a translator in the middle because I had to speak and then she had to translate and then she had to translate for me. Now, the good news is I was taping it in Italian so I could fact check what she had said. So I made sure I did that <laughs> when I came back. Always a journalist. So it was all on my phone. It was supposed to be hour-long catch-up and it ended up being a few hours, three hours, three and a half, four hours. I spent the entire day in Solomeo and learned a lot about him, his family. We actually went into a lot of conversation about where we come from. That was the conversation. Were you nervous to ask about hitting record? No, not at all. I just said, look, I'm going to record this because I don't know if this might actually result into an article. She seemed to be okay with it. Didn't change anything? We just were talking not about... I didn't ask him a single question about his company. Once we started digging into each other's personal history. How did we get here? I didn't ask him how big Brunello Cuccinelli the brand is. I wanted to know who the Bruno Cuccinelli the man is. How the hell did he get here? And he asked me, who was I? And he didn't know much about me either, just to be clear. If you're not in tech, you don't know who I am, and you shouldn't. Was this normal for you to go into, you've interviewed loads of people. Is this origin story here similar to how those interviews were shaped in terms of you weren't necessarily going to interview that someone, but it just naturally formed and you decided at a certain point, actually, this could turn into something. Or normally, were you much more methodical about it? I want to interview this person about this topic. I normally interview people with a purpose. It's very in response to certain news event. So it was mostly a news reporter or when I'm doing a story. So I very rarely do one-on-ones, which is why if you look at some of the one-on-ones I have are with people which are fairly random. They don't start out as interviews. They just are conversations. Most interviews, they're outcome-oriented and conversations are not outcome-oriented. That's the difference in my mind. So I wasn't really looking for Brunello to tell me anything amazing about his brand or his company. I don't care. I write about boring chip stuff and networks and how the internet works. I mean, do I really care about how much money his brand made? No, I don't. As a business reporter, I do, but it wasn't important enough for their conversation. But I think if you really boil down what happened when I have conversations and when I write about them or when I do them, they are with people who I connect at an emotional and a spiritual level. And there isn't that many people I do. And there is this good-looking Italian gentleman, and there's me, ragtag journalist, origin from India and from San Francisco, tech life. And he was very curious about who I was, just like I was very curious about, because I've always known that in Italy, being an entrepreneur is virtually impossible. So who the hell is this guy? That's what I was probing. You don't have a rich dad. How the hell did you get here? That's not very Italian of you. You guys talked a lot about philosophy when you mentioned 
and you want to be able to connect on a spiritual level that you might be interested in philosophy as well. Were you well-versed in some of the topics that he went into? I was quite impressed by his interest in philosophy and historical philosophy. I wouldn't say well-versed, but I know enough to have a conversation. One of the funny things about life for me is that even though I write about technology and I'm a full believer, and I invested in technology, I've been in tech for so long, people are scared of AI, and I'm just like, bring it on. But that doesn't take away the fact that I don't balance it with the reality of humanity. I come from pretty humble beginning. I have learned philosophy, I've learned religion, I've learned all these things as part of my self-education. How do you contextualize you as a person in this larger world we live in, or rather, not just world, the whole, how the atoms are arranged across the universe. And from that standpoint, I read a lot about a lot of things. I won't say I'm an expert on anything, but I have an interest in everything. And so that's why we were able to have a conversation. Now, he started going into a lot of Marcus Aurelius' teachings, and at some point, I think he went too deep, and I just had to tell him, hey, <laughs> you have to explain this because I'm not really, you're going too far. Because he spent most of his life studying that, but I have not, I know enough, but I'm not a stoic. Were those the books that filled his bookshelf? No, there was all sorts of books. There were books about American presidents. There were books about Gandhi. There were books about music. There were books about culture from other countries. It was not just one thing. The man is very well-read, and I think we just connected, and then we talked and talked and talked. And before you know it, it was a couple of hours, and I didn't have the lunch with him, by the way, in case you were wondering. But you did have pasta. No, nothing. I just ended up buying a sandwich from the store on the way back. I have to confess that's disappointing. But I had a great conversation. For me, I wasn't hungry because I had a great conversation. That filled me up. You mentioned earlier that there was a point at which he broke the ice by saying that you need to lose some weight to be able to fit into his jumpers. Were there other moments like that where you really felt what he was saying or you felt the nature of the conversation was shifting and there was something really interesting coming or being said? It felt like after first 15, 20 minutes of being formal, we had a connection. We were two humans who had probably known each other in past life. And then we just had a conversation. That was it. You were asking me for any special moments. There weren't any. As if I had known him for most of my life. And then we were having just this normal conversation. It started out talking about ourselves. And then it went into the role of technology in modern society. I think at one point we started talking about Amazon and we started talking about it was very natural. That's what probably everyone responds to is that very natural conversation. I wasn't trying to get something out of him and he wasn't trying to sell something to me, which is what usually happens in an interview. So that was it. I came home. I didn't even write it when I came home. I came back and I let it sit there for a month or so. And then I just, oh, okay, let me just finish it. Took me about three months to finish it because it's a really long conversation. Because there were times we were repeating ourselves a lot. Italian, English, translation. So there was a lot of time. Typical interview probably takes one hour in this, I guess, was one and a half hours just in translation alone. So... 
But the translator was amazing. I forget her name now, but she was from Milan. She flew down from Milan to do the interview. And she was fantastic. It was something that came across actually in the piece is that you also push back on him in a way where it seems you've had a previous relationship before where he'll make what I would consider almost an idealistic claim about finding balance. And you say, well, is that realistic in society today? And it makes it feel more authentic, I think, because it pulled out some of the details. And I was shocked at the 8.30 to 5.30. And I guess when you step back from all of it, sometimes we hear founders or entrepreneurs talk about finding balance. And it's something they say, but it's not something they do. Did you feel it to the extent that you saw what was going on around you as truly part of the culture out there? It seems like it. I've been to company offices. I've been to Facebook. I've gone to Google. I've seen a lot of pampered employees, a lot of rich pampered employees. But now when you work in a clothing factory or you work in a fashion business, it's a shitty business. Now, if you even have a factory which looks like a normal place with light and there is food which is fresh and there is no crazy shouting going on, Oh, that's just different. I've been to t-shirt making factories in LA and that is some harsh conditions. When I was younger, when I was a new immigrant to America, I would work as a truck unloading as a part-time gig and we would go to the fashion district and I'd, that was nasty business. And whereas what I saw there was definitely looked different. Now, compared to what we have in Silicon Valley, excessive things you do for your employees? No. But it just felt like a very cultured place where people were working and they had things. And like I went to the school where the people are being, the apprentices are being taught by other seniors and all that stuff, you know, looked very, very normal. They didn't know who I was. And there was no media person guiding us. It was just the translator and one person who was helping I think she was the PR woman. I don't know. I don't know what her job was, but there was just two people. But they didn't say a single damn thing. We were just walking around. I don't know. If it was, then I wouldn't know. But I'm natural-born skeptic, and so I didn't pick up anything. Believe me, when I say natural-born skeptic, I don't trust anyone till I do. It came across in the questions. I honestly mean that. And I am the same way. I'm cynical. I'm skeptical of all of this. Boss, I've been around so many bullshit <laughs> artists. Jesus Christ. I've known Mark Zuckerberg since he was literally a young punk. And I see a bullshit artist when I see one. So <laughs> Brunello isn't one. That's why a lot of bullshit artists are gravitated towards him is because somewhere down there, they all feel like maybe the purity will rub off on them. I'm not going to name names, but there's a whole bunch of them, especially in Silicon Valley, who rush to him. We can put that in the subscriber only feed. Rush to Brunello? They feel that they can be purified by hanging out with him. Do you think his model or his philosophy on business can work for other entrepreneurs? No. It's a one of a kind. I think you really need to be a person who believes it. You have to have that value system who to follow through with that in your business. It's a funny thing. You look at Brunello's values and how he navigated 
the pandemic, how many people did they cut from Puccinelli? None. They didn't lay off people. He took care of his team. And one of his disciples, I guess, or one of his fanboys is Mark Benioff, who was living large and cutting thousands of people at the same time and coming up with some mealy-mouth explanations. Unless you are of that value system deep down in your heart, you cannot run your business like that. You just cannot. Your business is who you really are. I always believe that. You know, it's like a true reflection of a company is the founder. And the founder's true values are reflected in the company. And Brunello put his name on his clothes and on his stores. And you go there, there is no inconsistency. Deep down, if he's dark soul, then man, I missed it. There was a line about his people, they need to know their businesses within 1% to 2% of reality, and they need to be sharp on that stuff. I know you didn't talk about it much, but it seems like there is some business sense, obviously. You don't become a billionaire, man, without being hardcore. Again, my conversation with him was not about the business, but yeah, you don't get to the place where he has, especially in a country like Italy, without being hardcore. The homie is hardcore. Let me just leave it at that. Well, where do you think that manifests? It started on making cashmere sweaters and now they're selling sweatpants, bro. Come on. You know, $1,200 sweatpants. That's where it manifests in. What can we read into the fact that the speed of which this meeting came together? You were around the corner in some ways. I think the person who arranged it. Was it Michael Williams? Yes. Again, I wasn't going there to get anything out of it. Honestly, and I don't think they were looking for anything. It was supposed to be one hour. I'm not kidding. We connected. This is it. End of story. You mentioned at the end, I want to take some of the things from this conversation and have them impact my life and have some change. Were you able to take anything away that you felt truly changed you? A few things, most definitely. I think I definitely became kinder towards people I worked with after I came back, because I was still part of a company at that time, which I had started. I think, you know, I've always been very respectful of the people I worked with. I think my decision-making became more deliberate because of that. How I communicated became a little bit better because of it. But again, it was just a reminder of how to do things right. Even though I had all those values in place, it was more am I actually living them properly or not? And I think a conversation with him was a reminder that, hey, it's not just enough to have values. You actually have to live them, work hard and following through on that every day. I'm trying to think of other things. I tried that email thing. That didn't work. Please. <laughs> Maybe it works for him because he's got 10 assistants. Nah, man. I make it a point that I don't check emails between... 5 p.m. on Friday till 5 a.m. on Sunday morning. So I take one day off. I should have done that the whole weekend, but it doesn't work, man. In today's world, if you stop the email, somebody's going to text you. You can't not check your phone. You can't do anything without your phone. So the messages are just going to show up unless you have an assistant who takes care of, and I don't. So there you go. Towards the end of the piece, you mentioned that he says to you that he would love to come and see you in America. Does that meeting happen? 
we've seen each other multiple times. I've spent time with him. I've met with his wife and him whenever they are in San Francisco. So at least twice, no, three times. We've talked on the phone a few times after that. I did another conversation with him, which I never really wrote down, mostly because it lacked a little something. It felt like I'm doing an interview. Yeah, no, I don't want to do this. Part one was good. Yeah, the sequel no one needed. I'll go to Solomeo again sometime and I'll spend time with him. But also, I'll let him decide when he wants to see me as well. There's a strong sense of nationalistic pride that he has. I thought there were some interesting <laughs> undertones, how he's talking about Italians and Italy versus the French, but even versus the US in terms of what's produced. Was that interesting to you? That was an interesting conversation, okay? So, because I don't really remember being that super engaged into it, like in a sense that I've known that the French, they have great brands, but not great quality at times. Different approach. They're bankers. I would not wear anything LVM. I used to be a big fan of Loro Piana, and LVM had just freaking ruined it. <laughs> They've just trashed it. We might have to pull that as a breakout because that will get Twitter absolutely <laughs> no, going. No, don't do that. <laughs> I won't, I won't. But I have no problem saying that. So I think LVMH is, they're like the meta of fashion. They suck the spirit out of every fashion brand they buy, literally. Whereas Cuccinelli has a lot of pride in that, in what he puts out. I'm joking about the $1,500 sweatpants, but... And those are nice sweatpants. I just don't think. I find Lululemon more expensive than it's like too much. I was disappointed because he said the Americans, you produce technology, which I felt I can't even wrap my hands around, you know. Maybe we should embrace that. We probably, or I probably should. I'm sure the rest of the country does. Maybe I don't. What do you want America to make right now? There is people who make boots in America. They're probably the best work boots on the planet. Nick's boots in, I think in Oregon or Northwest somewhere, they make $600 boots, probably the best pair of boots money can buy right now. They last you five decades. Or you can buy great jeans from Telesend. They're a San Francisco-based company. Or you can buy clothes from Stofa in New York or whatever. I'm just saying is that there is, whole bunch of brands and things which America makes. That's not what we are known for now. We're known for making big tech. Whether we like it or we don't, that's what we do. That's how we impact. Tech is culture, man. People don't really, still don't get it. There is more people wearing the iWatch than there are people wearing Rolex, Patek, any European brand combined. The total number of watches in the world every year sold is still American, though made in China. But again, it's an American company's product. And I think it's okay to embrace that. You should be proud of the fact that we are a tech first. I don't know how we became anti-tech in this country. It's the only export market we have after exporting burgers and movies. We're not doing too well in movies these days. We keep making the same superhero movies. And burgers and all are seen as unhealthy across the planet. So what do we got? No, fast food is not a growth market. Movies, who knows how long they're going to be in the growth market. But we export the culture of tech. 
And if we stop doing that, what is the place we have in a global order? We don't. I think that is a sad reflection that the American society itself hates tech so much. We cannot live without it. But this is our true national product, is technology. At this point, I'd like to interject and say we would happily have Americans tech. I'm not sure what we stand for anymore apart from the royal family. We will have it. Come on, man. You guys are still... You have a great town called London, which is like a museum. <laughs> Perfect. History. You have a great history. Great history. Yeah. Everybody wants to go to London. Cling on to something. Bring it back to the interview. When you published this piece, was there any reaction different to other articles or interviews you published at the time? Was it a slow burn? It seems to have this cult-like following now, but at the time, was there a big response to it? Not really. There isn't that much of a response. It was just normal. I got an email from Puchinelli's PR people in US, and they sent me an email saying, Brunella loved what you wrote. And I said, oh, okay. That was it. He read it and said, great. I'm glad he did, and he liked it. Normally, I don't care if people like what I have written or not, because I know I have to like it. It's my product. I have to be happy with it. But he did, and I was very happy that he liked the product. That was it. And then it was just the first month that I got maybe 10,000 readers. I made a promise to myself that I would never look at stats on my website again. I would never be metrics-driven writing ever again. I'll just write. That's it. I don't care if one person reads or a million. Do you think the assertion I made at the beginning about this being a huge cultural piece is accurate? You mentioned in the middle of this conversation that he tends to attract a lot of bullshit artists or bullshitters. And I just wonder, I had this self-reflection when you said that, and am I just swimming in a pool of bullshit artists around me? <laughs> I'm just saying there is why you're reading it. I'm not talking about people who are reading this piece and are attracted to what he has to say. I'm talking about bullshit artists who get close to him, who want to get close to him. Why do you go to a priest? It's only when you have something you need to be absolved. You need God only to help you because you've done something wrong. person who has done no wrong doesn't need God to save him. I'm going into the spiritual direction there. But why people like this piece culturally? It's a good reminder of what real values of a human being should be in a business context. That's it. We have lost human context and values in business. We have zero respect for people who work for us. We have zero respect for impact our businesses have on our society. We don't really think about it. We only have one metric that counts, which is how much money the business is making, how fast it is growing, and how rich we are getting. That has become the dominating narrative of business. It doesn't matter whether you are a tech company, tech startup founder, or you're running a fashion brand, or you're running a small store somewhere. And that is the sad reality of a life in a flat world. The internet has flattened everything. Every time I go to Japan and I meet somebody who has a store selling this random, unique one thing, how are you making money doing this? Then I realize they're not thinking about making money. But reality is we as business people have 
forgotten that there is people who get impacted, especially I look at my own industry, tech. Everybody talks about AI, AI, AI. Cannot have a single conversation with anyone, including the people who are out there talking about AI. We can actually have a normal conversation about the work impact. It's neither good nor bad. Forget all those things. Just to actually have a real conversation about how is it because most of them are so far removed from reality of human beings that you cannot put yourself in those shoes. On our end, it's just as a data. I wrote a piece called Data Darwinism on my blog in 2013. It was essentially about this whole notion. Wait, if the data doesn't include the idea of empathy, we're going to start impacting people in a way we don't realize. It's the same thing which is happening with AI now. There's a lot of junk which is going into open AI, and there is no corrective tool out there. They are not talking about those things. They're just talking about this abstract idea of regulating AI. Things which are in your control is like, don't put garbage in. If you put horse meat into a sausage, it's a horse meat sausage. It's not a pork sausage. I'm using that for Don's benefit. The burgers, <laughs> sorry, it was the burgers, like horse meat burgers is a big scandal. But it's the same thing, garbage in, garbage out. So why are you not talking about that? And because that's the honest thing we need to be discussing. And that's because we don't understand how things will impact humans. America might be exporting technology, but we are not really thinking about the cultural human impact of this technology. People are like, we all love Zara, we all love H&M, but we don't want to Think about how they impact the universe. Again, it's because that's not the narrative. That's not what you want. That's the thing which is why Brunello is saying, is, hey, I can't probably change the world, but I can make sure that the people who work for me, I can change reality for them. The company's done really well, and they've made a lot of money, but he does a lot of charity work, and he does do things which impact his society, his universe. Do you think there's anyone else that you've come across that's remotely similar to him? There's quite a few people. There's a lot of people who do that. Any that you would name off the top of your head? But none of them would be like as high profile as Brunello. I can't share names without their permission. Okay, that's fair. There's a lot of people who, who do things. I was joking about Mark Benioff, but he's given a lot of money to the hospital system in the San Francisco Bay Area. So that's genuine work. You know, Ron Conway is another tech guy who has donated a lot of money to various medical systems and charities in San Francisco Bay Area. No one talks about it, but he's one of the big donors. So I just want to balance out. I was giving Mark a little, but I also think that he's done more by giving away a lot of things to the local community, here, including efforts for like, helping out with homelessness and all those kind of things. So there is a balance to that. Maybe that is the impact over a period of time of hanging out with Brunello. It's like carbon neutral. Many of these companies, they don't actually reduce their carbon footprint. They just buy things to offset it. I'm being maybe a little bit harsh and cynical, but... I think we are all hypocritical, all of us, including me. We all like to think that we do amazing things and we like to save the planet, and yet we do shitty things. Get on a plane and go 
because we want to see orcas or some stupid thing like that. What do you think the right lesson to draw from your conversation with him is? We've talked about how you tried the phone thing, doesn't work for you. Obviously, the human side of it comes out really strongly. Is that the lesson? Is there another lesson you would urge founders? Or I think for everyone who reads that piece, the only lesson to take away is that every action of ours has an impact, and there is likely an impact on a human being somewhere because of our actions. So as business people, we need to be cognizant of that. I don't think he's an anti-capitalist, and neither am I. I'm not saying that we should stop the business of growth or finding new ways to add more value to your company, but it shouldn't be a zero cost, a zero sum game. You're going to have an impact on other people. Just be aware of that. Treat people. You don't have to be their best friend, but you actually have to remember that there are people at the end of it. Because at the end of it, we are all connected. That was the big lesson of it all. He's a farmer's son. Where he got here, we forget that. It doesn't happen very often in his country. And just because it has happened, he could forget his roots and not remember that. But just the idea, the dignity of work was the biggest takeaway for me. If you do not respect what other people do, including people who work for you, I think you're just not a good person. This interview published, you said it took a while to get to the publishing point, but it came out quite a difficult point for you in terms of GigaOM, which I know I think you'd left the year before, but GigaOM was shutting down at a similar time to you having this conversation with Brunello. Did that impact this piece at all or your emotions around this time in your life? Yeah, it was a pretty shit time. I can't sugarcoat it. It was pretty shit time. I think but it was a good reminder that if one thing ends, something new starts and it was something new was already starting. I was on to doing other things. And I think it was just a rough time. I don't know. I think maybe that's why the interview felt a little bit more emotionally connected and that I was a little raw. I was more able to open up like a random stranger, or maybe he wasn't a stranger after all. And I'd probably known him in a before life. You don't know how the universe works. And so you're asking me to explain things and I don't. (laughs) No, that's totally fine. To the final question, I want to ask a very selfish question. You've been at the forefront of media and tech for, as you say, three decades. You had a roaring blog in the early 2000s. I think you were podcasting before basically anyone else in the world. Two freshlings into the media world, me and Matt. What advice do you have for us in the media industry and trying to build a media business? I don't have much advice other than the one I gave to myself, which is stay true to your values. I've never written stories for the sake of writing stories. I've always written stuff which has been right. I've always served the reader before anyone else. There's a lot of media people right now who write to impress other media people or to impress their sources. I write to make sure that the readers are getting what they want. That is it. And so in your case, it would be your listeners are more important than your advertisers No one is your friend, but the people who give you their attention, you owe them. You definitely owe them. And if you don't respect that, you shouldn't be in this business. Our industry has forgotten that completely. 
and I say our industry, you know, I mean, it's both. I was a writer and then an investor as a VC. I think we have seen the VC industry forget its true work, and we've seen the media industry forget that. There's few people who do a really good job, even now in the media. I think we are living in a very tough time, which is if you're on the right and you do the right coverage, you get tarnished. And if you're on the left, you get tarnished. So being middle of the road, doing things which are straight for the reader is the most important thing. So a listener in your case, do that, be consistent, be amazing, which you guys are. I went and listened to a few of your podcasts. So you don't have to do much and do not ask me any more questions. <laughs> that will be a start. I can do that. A fantastic place to close. And thank you so much, both for the conversation and for writing the piece in the first place. It's certainly had an impact on both of us. So thank you for your time. My pleasure. And thank you so much for being curious about something which I thought was just a conversation. Much more than that. Much more than that. Thank you. <laughs> thank you all. All right, Tom, I would normally ask you your opinion on something about the interview, but I actually want to monologue quickly because it was a unique experience. The stage is yours. I want to set it up and you can reply to all this. First, I feel a sense of relief after that conversation. I had this worry, something that we talked about a little bit beforehand, that we were going to have this conversation with Ohm and somehow I was going to leave feeling like the Brunello we read about was not the real Brunello or it was too good to be true. And I don't know what I was expecting, but I think Ohm's skepticism about things generally actually did make me feel even stronger about how Brunello operates and even just some explanations around why it's even possible, because I think so many people could cloud that out of your head, that operating that way is even possible. So that's the first thing. I feel this sense of relief. The second thing is Patrick often talks about growth without goals. What better example where clearly he did not go in with this mindset of this is going to be an interview. It was a conversation and then it evolved into something else. And I think there's something to that serendipity and who better than Brunello to be the person on the other side of it. So I think it's just a really good example of why doing things for just the general sake of doing them and without a real purpose in mind, but just because you know that's where your mind should go and you should explore your curiosity. Another great example of that. And then number three, I need to clear my name from being associated with anti-tech. What I was simply saying is I appreciate physical goods. I appreciate craftsmanship. And what he got into at the end there was about data Darwinism and how a lot of the things that we put out are data arbitrages and treat everybody as numbers and quantification of things. I'm not into that. So that's a lot to kind of spill out, but I need to get it all out there right up front. Do you feel lighter? Massively lighter. Massively lighter. I've been wondering why every day you're like, should we do the OM debrief? And then I'm not quite ready for it yet. And now I understand why you've had this pent up emotion, these thoughts swirling around your head. And I'm glad you finally been able to get it off your chest. To bring you behind the scenes, messaging Dom throughout the weekend with things that all made me think of. It really hit me in my core, this conversation and another conversation we had at the end of the last week 
So yes, to put it lightly, I feel lighter. Well, I'm pleased for you. And I think just to really underline why you might have had all those thoughts going through your mind over the weekend, in addition to what you just said, during the interview with Om, it was a really interesting dynamic where, again, we had a formula for how we thought the conversation would go. Let's take him chronologically through this process of how he met Brunello and how it unfolded. And within the first two minutes, effectively, it was clear that it was not going to go that way. And so then it took us a long time to process what is happening both in the moment and then after what actually is the big lesson here. And I think it's such a deep lesson that he taught us. And he taught us through the interview that we were talking about of most interviews are outcome orientated. And obviously we went to Ohm and said, hey, can we do this with you? It's for our show Making Media. But he said most conversations are not outcome oriented. And so that's why it hits you between the eyes when you read something that is genuinely authentic and comes out just because two people are having a curious conversation about stuff that they're interested in. And if other people may be interested in reading whatever they talk about, then wow, is that different to most other things you ever read or hear on the internet? And he never said it explicitly to us, but there was that undertone through the whole thing. And then after we were like, wow, he's got a real point there. And then you dive into some of Brunello's value system and the way he operates his business that came out so neatly through this piece that I've written about how businesses are just people and we've lost that touch with the human connection that you were talking about. And actually, maybe we shouldn't think in dollars. We should think about feelings and what we're asking people to do when we give them work, how it impacts their life in ways that we'll never be able to appreciate because we either don't see them anymore, we work remotely, or because 6, 7 p.m. we go home and we just assume that they are enjoying themselves or whatever else it might be. We try and do these debriefs really closely to the conversation because we like to have the energy after, but we just couldn't do it in this case because we really need to process this. And (laughs) this is a fair while after. And I think for all those reasons, I'm still thinking about it. I wish I had asked the question, Is there a way to manufacture what he said about the best interviews are the ones that aren't intentional? They're just conversations. Is there a way to manufacture that when you're trying to run a media business? And he obviously ran a very successful media business. He's run a number of them and worked in a number of others. Is there a way that you can balance those two things? Because they're at odds with each other. A media business, consistency is such an important piece of delivering good stuff to people over a long period of time on a regular cadence. But you can't do that if the best stuff is organic. I would have loved to have seen his response to that question. And I'm sure I can ask him because he was very, very generous with his time. He was. And we spent probably another 45 minutes to an hour after we stopped recording, talking more about a lot of things around the conversation, around him, around us. I had a meeting set up for noon. And I actually pushed back the meeting because I was enjoying the conversation we were having with him so much. So it just goes to show. I think what you're saying there about is it possible to manufacture something is literally the antithesis <laughs> of what he's getting at is you can't have this outcome in mind. You can't work backwards with something conversation oriented uh, that is going to reach the potential that something like that Cuccinelli piece did. You step back and you say, okay, the thing that made this good was Ohm was willing to challenge him. Ohm was willing to say, well, is that really possible? Ohm was willing to reflect on himself and be vulnerable. And it's so unique into the place, the time, the moment, and you start to put together all the variables. And I think that's what makes it such a unique piece. Here's one thing for you. That I truly think it's one of the better pieces that anybody can read, any entrepreneur can read. It's something that is 
while he said it's long, it's really not that long. Fairly easy to digest. It's worth reading. It's worth reflecting upon. And it's been out there for years and years and years. But he doesn't really know what money he made from it. And it's a timeless piece. But monetization-wise, it doesn't do that much. And this is the uncomfortable thing that people don't really want to talk about. But okay, well, does that matter? Do you have any reaction to that? Do you care? A true artist is not supposed to care whether their stuff makes money or not. The question is, do I care whether Ohm's not making any money out of this piece? Not Ohm specifically, but just keeping that in mind. This was this great piece. It was not manufactured. It was organic. It's going to have all this influence on different people. And in terms of direct monetization, you'll never be able to tell whether it made much money. And if I were to say, what if that's the reality of the world? I think this ties really neatly with something that Patrick and David Zenra on our network talk about all of the time. People fundamentally misunderstand podcasting because they see the headlines of slow growth, quite difficult to monetize, but they don't appreciate the power of speaking into people's, even a small number of people's ears and the different ways in which your content gets into the weirdest people's hands and how that then comes back to you in indirect ways that offers opportunities that you would never have ever had beforehand. And I think this speaks to that. I love that it's true, particularly in this case, because it's almost like art imitating life in some ways, because either this whole conversation about you have to put family values ahead of everything. That's what Kuchinelli's built this business around. And money is a nice byproduct of that. Obviously, there, as he said in the conversation, this homie is hardcore. He clearly has commercial <laughs> instincts. And at some point, you do need money to feed your family. But it is secondary consideration. I just picture an image with Brunello in his countryside with his trousers with a byline. This homie is hardcore, which is too perfect. I think what you said is right. And it ties back to the whole data point. If we just try to quantify everything, you're not going to miss it. Our brains are too small to really comprehend or draw the lines and draw the connections. And with a lot of the conversation we were having after the fact, in terms of some of the people that he's met, I would have to imagine there's a connection to that conversation that he had there. But it was not what I expected going in a different direction in terms of what we do with the show. And I like the behind the scenes stuff, both with him and Morgan, the same messaging came back, which I appreciate, actually. What's interesting about this is they could easily say, no, this is what I do. This is how I do it. This is why I do it. And they choose to very adamantly go against that. We need to get Brian from The One Perfect Story onto our podcast and ask him whether his conversation with Wright Thompson went the way he thought it would, because we've used that as the inspiration for these two conversations. And both of them, to your point, just haven't gone in the direction that we wanted them to go. But at some point, maybe it's you idiots, figure it out. <laughs> the way you want the world to be, the world does not adhere to that reality. Well, it's interesting. I don't know that I would say they're not going the way that I want them to go. I actually don't, and I'm not just trying to say this to align myself with what Owen was saying, but I am very comfortable with them telling us, you're completely out of your minds. This is not how this stuff works. All the better. It's better to just get a conclusion, even if that's the conclusion, than to leave it open-ended and just talk about it. If somebody comes out and they're a Seinfeld style, this is my grind process, that's great. But here's the reality. You have Seinfeld, then you have Morgan, then you have Ohm, three different people, three different categories, all that stuff. 
three different styles. For all that we make about pattern recognition and styles, you could do it differently. And I think that should be the unlock for everybody is clearly there's not one way to do it. There's more than one way to peel an orange. Find your own way. The other thing that I really want to talk about is laughter and how what a universal language that is. The point at which he said barriers came down was when Cuccinelli said, just lose some weight and then you'll be able to fit one of my jumpers. You see that time and time again. And it's something that I try and use a lot as well. Just lightening things up. Everyone tries to be so serious. Okay, we can talk about something serious in a lighthearted fashion. Doesn't mean that I'm not serious about it. He's Italian, Ohm's American Indian. And then they've got a translator in the middle. Suddenly, everyone just feels a little bit easier with each other because they've been able to laugh at each other. And they've made a joke, as Ohm said, a joke that my brother would make to me. I think everyone can learn a bit about that. No matter who you're meeting, no matter how intimidated you may or may not be, I'm not suggesting you tell someone to lose weight. That's probably not the right strategy in most cases. But there are ways that just break down the barrier and laughing is such a good way to do that. I told you a week ago, one of the signs that I am comfortable with somebody or that I enjoy somebody is that I can make fun of them. And I knew exactly what he meant when he said that. You reach this certain level of connectedness, which is hard to do in that short period of time. The little tidbit in terms of having a recorder so that you can check to see if the translator was speaking the truth in terms of what was being said was really interesting. Because if you look at that article, it's so eloquently written in terms of the answers. And I was wondering to myself, how could he possibly know that was true if it was coming through a translator? Maybe it was just a really eloquent translator. But that was good inside baseball right there. Hey, I love you. But you did tell us that you had the pasta there. And then you told us that you didn't have the pasta there. So there is one little detail. Where did he say that he had it? He said the pasta was delicious. Maybe he didn't say he actually had it, but he definitely said the pasta was delicious. Might be from... Michael Williams, other making media guest that makes surprise appearance in this episode. Maybe it was Michael Williams because I know he's talked about the food. I was stunned when you came up with that. I was like, where on earth you pulled that from? Very impressive. The making media mosaic, we're just building it little block by little block. That's why I used to be a research analyst. Got to be able to connect <laughs> the dots, baby. Well, I hope everybody else enjoyed this philosophical meta discussion that went, I don't care. I don't care if they did or didn't. Oh, I like that. I enjoyed it. I got a lot from it. And I will remember it for a very long time. Yeah, as will I. And Ohm made me rethink a lot of things in a good way. So respect to him on that. We're going through an existential crisis at Colossus and it's all Ohm's fault. <laughs> Amazing. Great. Fantastic. Well, nice mix of different episodes here. We got some good ones coming up too. And as always, if you have feedback, especially on the more deep philosophical level as it comes to content, you fire that away. Email, Spotify, Twitter, Carrier Pigeon, wherever you want to send it, however you want to send it, send it our way. We love you all. We're all eyes and ears. See you on the other side.